Doable discipleship's back. This is not take two. <laughs> nope. We're we're rocking and rolling on all cylinders. <laughs> no flaw. <laughs> That's Doug Jones. I'm Jason Wheeland. This is Doable Discipleship. Yeah. It's a Saddleback Church podcast and YouTube show designed to help you deepen your friendship with God, but sometimes we call it the show that helps you grow. Yes, yes. Today we're continuing our series on the Bible. We're calling it Bible Study Crash Course. Last week we did an orientation where we talked about just the basics of the Bible. How's it composed? How did it come to exist? Stuff like that. Make sure you go back and watch that. Listen to this whole series, please. Yeah. Don't just walk in partway through the series and try to figure out where you are. It won't make very much sense if you do that. So make sure you listen to the entire thing, which kicked off last week. Uh, As we said last time, The Bible is an integral part of the Christian life. It is the guidebook for Christian living. And you cannot live the life that God designed you to live if you are not deeply connected and rooted in His Word. But, of course, the Bible is something that is poorly understood by a lot of people, is very scary to many people. And in this series, we want to help you get handles on it. Uh, So, we're trying to get you to a place where you can approach the Bible with some confidence and have a good idea of how to handle the Word of God. Yeah, a great example is a lot of people think that the Bible is just, it's the Bible, it's its own thing. It's, um, and actually, uh, the Bible actually contains many different kinds of literature, also called genres, right? And in these different genres serve different sorts of purposes, and the only way to properly understand the Bible is to understand what kind of genres um, there are and how they are meant to be interpreted, because each book is meant to be read through that lens of that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, to talk about genres today, we have uh, a great guest back with us today. You know him, you love him. His name is Brandon Bathauer, and he's going to be filling this uh, vacant seat in just a moment. All right, we're back. Brandon Bathour, thanks for coming again, dude. Oh, it is a pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure to be a whole with you guys series again. with you. We'll link that in the show notes. People want to go back and check out who Jesus really was. They can go go look at that. That was fun. Those episodes. That was a good time. Glad to have you back. Let's Thank talk you. about why genres are so important. Why does it matter? Yeah, so I think you guys shared in the opening, but when it, when it comes to the uh, the biblical genres, it's so easy to just jump right into this ancient book that's so different from from where we are now, so different culturally, and there's so much nuance and difference in in uh, in the genres. And so uh, one of the reasons that genre is so important is it helps us really understand how to dig into uh, scripture. You know, I was thinking about like movie trailers, right? So mm. when we sit down in, in our context right now in Western America, you sit down and you watch uh, the movie and you get all the trailers beforehand. Uh, when you watch that first trailer, it's like, okay, if there's an explosion within the first like ten seconds, okay, this is an action movie, mm-hmm. right? If you have like, we're a very weird comedy. Yeah, that's true. Then or you got if like you a... see a celebrity that you know is only in action movies. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> it's Dwayne, an Arnold movie. Johnson. I got it. It's going to, oh yeah. And then you've got like, if it's like a British dude with a chiseled jaw and maybe a picnic bench, then you're like, okay, romantic comedy, right? <laughs> it's if... Hugh Grant again. <laughs> Exa- again, here he is. Uh, and then, you know, let's say that it's, you have this really weird kind of scratchy font and there's some very quiet music. Okay, it's going to be a scary movie, right? So we can tell right away within the first second or two um, what type of movie this is going to be. And that sets our expectations, Yeah. right? So the original, uh, the original readers of the Old Testament and New Testament would have known this right away. As soon as they read those first phrases, they would have said, okay, we've got our expectations set. Mm-hmm. Now, for us, it's kind of like, if I go into an action movie, uh, but what I'm really expecting is a science fiction movie, or let's make it even more extreme. If I'm watching a horror film, and I'm expecting it to be a romantic comedy, I'm going to walk in with a completely different set of expectations. I'm mm-hmm. going to be like, okay, where's the where's the romance? No, it's nowhere. Okay, also, where's the terrible experience? This is like a horrible <laughs> experience, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is often what happens with the Bible is we jump into it expecting certain things, um, and the different genres show us very different uh, pieces. Yeah, so that's true. So what happens when we actually recognize uh, these diverse genres? It helps us actually appreciate the richness of the Bible. Right, that the Bible is not just a documentary. Right, maybe we read the Bible just as like 
an like informational movie. Like it's just the whole thing is voiced over by Morgan Freeman. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that would be really nice, actually. I'd listen to the Bible by Morgan Ken Freeman. Ken Burns is the Bible. Yeah. Exactly. With like the pictures <laughs> zooming in and out. Yeah. So we do that. Uh, or maybe we think, yeah, the whole thing's an instructional video. Like, yeah. Here's how you work in this, you know, in this uh, scientific lab, and we're gonna tell you the seven steps to working in this lab, and that's it. No, actually, the Bible is so much more diverse than that. Hmm. And when we open our eyes to the di- different genres, we understand things like poetry and uh, how it has this um, prophecy and apocalyptic writings, all these amazing genres. You understand that the Bible is not just this uh, instructional manual, right? Mm-hmm. There's some of that in there. Yes. But it's this library of just beautiful things. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's that's one of the great benefits of understanding genre. And I think the other one is we actually understand God reveals himself in different ways. He's not just the instructor telling you, here's how to live. Mm-hmm. He's also an artist and a creator and a... Um, and one that enjoys literary genius. Mm-hmm. So um, this is why I love these different genres. Yeah, yeah, understanding a genre too helps us interpret the Bible appropriately, right? It helps us, um, as we understand these different genres, we can understand different ways to interpret. Yeah. Um, so firstly, like, it protects us against a misunderstanding and misapplication. Um, and that's, that's very important, especially with certain types of literature, you don't want to, you know, take certain things certain ways, and we'll get into that as we detail these out. But it also helps us to see a greater depth in each passage. As we understand the genre and understand um, the type of writing that it is, it allows us to go deeper into a passage and really get the... The background of how the author was writing it, and we'll talk mm-hmm. more about authors next week. But starting with genres is a great place to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a great verse here that we just want to make reference to. Second Timothy two fifteen says, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who handles correctly, correctly handles the word of truth." Yeah, good. I like what you said about the movie thing. I, I was thinking like. Uh, when it comes to the interpretation part, I was yeah. thinking about like, what if you went to the theater and saw, you know, like a sci-fi horror flick, but believed that it was actually a documentary? Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yeah. you leave like with eyes darting <laughs> everywhere, like, when are these Whoa. giant robots going to come and wipe us out? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, there's a real interpretation, there's a need for good interpretation here. So we can, uh, as we said in previous episodes, read the Bible for all it's worth and get get the meaning that is both as rich as possible and is as true as possible to the intent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. let's talk about the primary genres in the Bible. These aren't all of them. There are some kind of nuanced subgenres, but these are going to be the big ones that we're going to cover today, and this pretty much covers the majority of the Bible. The first one is historical narrative, which is probably the one that we're the most familiar with, because that's what the Bible seems to be to us when we read it. Like it's a it's, historical book. It's, it's a historical narrative. book. It deals with historical events and that kind of stuff. And indeed, a big chunk of the Bible does fit into this category. Um, so historical narrative records past events. It, it, it recalls things that are important in, in, in history. Uh, books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can be kind of fit into this category because they all recall important events. Uh, historical narr- narrative also in, uh, seeks to explain how things came to be the way they are. Um, so the reason why the stuff is contained is because it helps us understand the chain of events that brought us to this point. Um, an example that would be Genesis. Um, we talked about it, I think, week one, um, that Genesis gives us a, a picture of how sin came to be, how the universe came into existence, and that kind of stuff. So it helps us to kind of orient ourselves within the story by knowing what happened previously. Um, Exodus falls into this category. Uh, Joshua falls into this category, as well as others. So historical narr- narrative is a big chunk of the Bible. It's an extremely important part of the Bible because it helps us figure out how we fit into the story. Uh, but there's an in- interpretive key that I want to cover when it comes to that, which is not everything that's contained in the Bible is condoned by God. Mm-hmm. That's an important one to understand. We've always got to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. That's so good. So when you're reading these ancient writings, you're reading about events that occurred and that were recorded. But just because it's in the Bible does not mean that God says that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one example I think that um, can easily come up all the time when you're reading the Old Testament is like King David. David was a man who was said to be after God's own heart, but he had multiple wives. 
And so we read passages like that, and we're like, well, does the fact that David had multiple wives and that's in the Bible mean it's okay to have multiple wives? That's what God wants for us? No, it does not mean that. It merely means that it happened and it was recorded. And there are lots of, um, there are lots of things that are recorded historically that are sometimes recorded because they're the direct opposite of what God wants you to do. Sometimes those are cautionary tales that are meant to show you what life is like if you disregard God or if you turn on Him. In Foundations, mm-hmm. it says, understand the historical context or passages in light of doctrinal passages. Yes, that's, that's good. good. And and I think that's the thing, right? When we when we come up with an expectation that the Bible is just an instructional video, right, or it's just moral teachings, mm-hmm. then it totally makes sense that when you open the Bible randomly to the story of David and you're reading about... Um, some battle he was in, and he killed a bunch of people. And you think, okay, I guess the Bible's telling me to do that. It's like, no, no, no. we gotta right. again let our expectations be set by genre. Yeah, and I find it really interesting that the majority of the Bible is story. Uh, there are a lot of religious books that are just principles. Mm-hmm. You know, here are ten principles of how to live. Yeah, um, or here are the ten truths about God. But I find it so interesting that. Uh, God decided to use story, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the most common way of learning and expressing yeah. ideas for most of human history, yeah. is that God used story to get that across. And mm-hmm. I, I find that to be a, a pretty amazing thing. Huh? Yeah, I think it's so true. too. Yeah, historical narrative does help help drive the story forward. Uh, what about the next one, Jason? Uh, the second genre that we wanted to touch on was law. Um, so you're like, law, where's that? Uh, if you've ever been stuck in Leviticus, it's because you've been stuck in a law book. <laughs> um, and so there's three main types of law that are talked about throughout Scripture, and it's important to kind of know each one. Uh, the first one is moral law, right? So that is law that is derived from God's own character and remains true across time. And the big example of this, the Ten Commandments. Um and the Ten Commandments were true when God first gave them, and they're true today. Um, so, that, so that's a moral law. It's a it's a law. It's instruction that that um, that engages a, a morality into it. So it's important to it's it's something that affects us throughout all of history, all of time. It's timeless. Mm-hmm. The second one is civil law, and that's establishing a, a governing framework in order to promote stability and justice within the nation of Israel. So there's um, that's a lot of what you see from Leviticus. It, it, it's these civil laws of of what they're telling the nation of Israel, and that society is law at the is, is law for them. So that's an important point to know. Is there's is there is moral law which is true for throughout time there is is civil law and then there's ceremonial law and that's probably the one that you may have seen the most that you're like oh that's that's different um what was going on with that and that was laws pertaining to the old testament temple and the priesthood right these laws highlight the problem of sin and the human need for a savior as a foreshadowing of the saving work of jesus and that's what's so powerful like it, you read the Old Testament, and inevitably you read about these animal sacrifices. And the question is always, why do they have to do the, the, the sacrifices? What was going on with all these sacrifices? It's, it's highlighting, it's the problem of sin and the need for a Savior. And it's, it's foreshadowing the work of Jesus, who is the ultimate a sacrifice for our sin. Um, so that's the ceremonial law. And, and, and there's a lot more that goes along with that. But it's important, as, as we read these different types of laws and understand, um, as you're reading the Bible and you're reading these different types of laws, it's important to know that many of these laws are still valid today, right? While others have been fulfilled in Christ. So that's the ex- example with the animal sacrifices. Mm-hmm. We don't need to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus was the sacrifice for us. It, yeah. That has been fulfilled. We don't need to engage in that anymore. Yeah. Is there any other stuff you guys want to add well, with let law? Me, let me ask this real quick. So, all right. So, I'm in Leviticus. I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm coming, reading through these laws. Uh, how do I, like, what do I do with this? Like, as I'm reading it, if how do I know that it's moral law or civil law or ceremonial law? And then, like, if it's not just moral law, which is like, great, that's telling me how I should live, then, like, what do I do with it? What do you, what, what do you guys say? That's a good question, but I think a starting place is to recognize how that law fits into the big 
a yes. big story arc of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as we said, there are some laws that are true for all time. So those moral laws that are rooted in God's own character that are consistently upheld throughout Old and New Testaments, all, all throughout the storyline, those are laws that never go out of style, never never go off our radar. Those are things that we should keep, keep obeying f- in perpetuity. There are civil laws, of course. So again, I think identifying the type of law you're reading is important. Yeah. So you, you had civil law, which you had a... a a huge number of people coming out of Egypt. They're transitioning into a, a social life in this newly populated place. Yeah. And God established laws to help ever... create an orderly society. Mm-hmm. You're trying to pivot from uh, a kind of loose group of people traveling through the wilderness to people setting up a society together. And so I think they're mingled in there. You have some laws that are timeless because many of those mm-hmm. civil laws, like caring for the poor and that kind of thing, are rooted in God's own character. Mm-hmm. But the manner in which those are applied uh, can vary. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, with ceremonial law, that's the stuff that is almost entirely fulfilled in Christ. But I think what we can do there, when we're reading these ancient laws, I think it conveys, each of them conveys something true about God that we can begin to apply to our lives today. Um, but I think you had an answer to your own question there, so why don't you go <laughs> ahead? I don't know if I did, but I'll, I'll give a shot at it. I mean, I, <laughs> I think there's something about, um, uh, yeah, when we understand that the Bible is primarily not about us, but it shows who God is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think what, what's cool about the law is when you get to a point and you're like, all right, so there's something about if this person steals this person's donkey and then <laughs> they got to make sure that this is balanced. What I'll do in that moment is I'm looking through and saying, okay, what I'm getting from this is that God is a just God. Yes. Yeah. And amidst this reality of these people coming from this area and understanding the historical context, like you were saying, it helps me understand, okay, well, this, I can see how that's going to bring order into the chaos, right? This work that God did in Genesis 1 of bringing mm-hmm. order out of chaos, it's still kind of that same thing. So. Yeah. Uh, we don't run into donkeys being stolen so much anymore here in Southern California. I don't know California. where you live, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, I don't know. Not here so much. But, uh, but the way that we can apply that is to say, okay, well, how do we make sure justice is happening around us in a yeah. mighty way? And how can we, even if we're not setting laws, um, which most of us aren't, how do we, how do we live into this, um, the principles behind these laws? Yeah, so, exactly. And law says a lot about the society you live in. I mean, God was making a statement about the kind of people he wanted mm-hmm. the nation of Israel to be. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true of, you can think of like the most mundane laws that we have in our, in our society. I, I think of like speed limits, you know, mm-hmm. what is a speed limit? Well, it keeps you from going too fast so that if an accident happened, it would reduce the likelihood of serious injury or death. What does that law say? It says we're a society that thinks human it's life good. is important. It's yeah. really good. And so we try to place limitations in place that will keep human life from being lost or damaged as much as possible. So I, I think there's always a principle behind every law that we mm-hmm. that we read about. And yeah. it's it's kind of I think it's very interesting that these books of law exist at all because actually when you dig into them more deeply, these covenants that God made with mm-hmm. Israel were rooted in actually very common contractual language of the ancient Near East. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's pretty cool that in the Bible you have things as diverse, you have two ends of the spectrum and then everything in between, you know, something is as uh, sort of clinical as le- literal legal documentation. It would have been like like some of some of Leviticus and parts of like Joshua and stuff are like documents that you would find in like an ancient courtroom mm-hmm. <laughs> all the way up to like you know, Song of Songs, you know, yeah. this expression <laughs> of love language, and romance yeah. and all that stuff. I just think it's crazy, the diversity of the Bible. Yeah. And I think what's cool is, 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 is uh, go back and read these books, even though sometimes they're difficult to get through, is read them. Mm-hmm. But then when you're reading the New Testament and you're seeing, Jesus makes reference to these. He talks about these laws. He, he, he brings them back up and he talks about them in a different way sometimes too. So it's important to, you know, have that whole picture. Yeah, yeah. So and I, I think the final bit on the ceremonial piece, um, because that can be really weird about like, okay, why is this animal getting killed and all this stuff? I think it really comes down to these these uh, powerful images that are used all throughout the Bible, where these um, spiritual realities are kind of uh, presented in physical uh, sure. symbols. So yeah. the idea that death comes as a result of sin and somehow redeems sin, right? That just sets up beautifully for Jesus. So, And the sacrificial system helped 
keep people from losing sight of the severity of their own sin. Right. Yeah, exactly. Guilt, you know, I mean, yeah. even <clears throat> even in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, and the death of an animal resulted from that. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, that God that God made coverings for them using the skins of animals. Um, so there's God has always been interested in making sure that human beings, not because he hates human beings, but because he loves human beings, making it clear to them the severity of sin, the severity of evil. And so, yeah, I think you, your, your question raises an important point. And I think what we're landing on here is when you're reading books of law, um, make sure that as you read, you don't get lost in the minutia of the law, but you try to see the heart of God, yeah. which is behind that that's law. That's great. I think that's an important key there. Yeah. And the law can be this like um, judgmental feeling thing, like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so judgmental, and man, these are really high standards, but really at the core of it is God saying, this is how the people of God function. Yeah. yeah. This is who I want my people to be. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. What's about the next one? All right. So the uh, next one um, is wisdom literature, which um, if... You, I'm trying to think of a of a movie counterpart of this. Um, hmm. I can't think of one. But this is basically your your wise grandpa or uncle sitting in an armchair giving you thoughts of life, right? These offer wise sayings and instructive stories to help the reader make sense of the world and really live a good life. Um, they wrestle with some big questions. So some examples of this would be Proverbs would be the most kind of popular um, wisdom literature. These little like fortune cookie statements that are one or two sentences. That's how you know it's it's wisdom literatures. It's usually short and concise. You could tweet it. Yeah, yeah. you can tweet it. Exactly. So this is the tweet of, of, um, of scripture. Yeah. Uh, but then you have other things like Job, which is actually a, kind of a story. It's a narrative, but it's all about um, about how things work in the world. Ecclesiastes is a really interesting book because it is the story of a guy who's trying to figure out kind of the meaning of life. Yeah. And you'd think, okay, this is the Bible. The meaning of life is just, well, love God, you yeah. know, love others. But instead, walks you through this whole process, and he's gaining wisdom throughout it. So... Um, if you think of kind of the the Greek um, philosophers of trying to figure out how does life work, this is kind of similar. Yeah. Um, and what I love about the wisdom literature of the Bible is that it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's it's not tr- necessarily trying to just come out and say this is this is what it is, this is what you should do, this is how it is. There's a wrestling that you experience absolutely. through it, and the wrestling is visible in it. And I think that. That actually makes it something that we can connect with as individuals because none of us exists in this state where we have all the answers all the time <laughs> and never wrestle. So to to kind of join with these ancient authors as they wrestle through these questions and deal with that, I think is a it's a powerful way that I can connect with um, sort of the the personality of God's word. Yeah. You know, and when you read when you read the Book of Job. And you read it as if it is, again, just instructional content um, or just a documentary. It's going to be really tough. But when you actually read it and you understand this is a literary genre and there's literature behind this, Mm -hmm. you realize it's not easy to dig into, Mm -hmm. um, but it causes you to wrestle. And that's where a lot of our transformation actually comes. Mm -hmm. Right. a couple, uh, a key on on reading wisdom literature is, again, wisdom writings contain general principles, but not like guarantees. So when we start taking wisdom literature and turning them into, God has given me a literal promise on this point, hmm. um, I think we're reading it incorrectly. Um, yeah. I think we're bending in the wrong way. So an example would be Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way uh, they should go, and they won't depart from it. And so he's okay, if I take that as a promise, as a, an instructional truth, then yeah, as long as I train up the child, then it's guaranteed that they will continue on that path. And it's right. like, no, no, this is a proverb. This is saying generally... It's a wise saying. Yeah, yeah. generally, yeah. if you take the time to point your kids in this direction, they're generally going to go in that direction. So mm-hmm. spend your time there, not just it's doing better all the contrary. Yeah. Exactly. And if we overwork the proverb in that regard, then there's actually an inverse to that too, where mm-hmm. you can falsely believe that you're being promised something that is not necessarily being promised to you. But the other side of it is you may be a parent who raises kids, sends them out into the world, and maybe they go through periods of time where they do depart from the way you taught them. Maybe they do depart from faith. Maybe they do. And then if you 
if you interpret these kinds of passages wrong, then you can end up with a place of guilt where you go, well, according to this promise, that must mean that I screwed up somewhere mm. along the way, that I made a terrible mistake in my parenting, I didn't lead them properly, and that's why they wound up off track. But the reality is, no, Proverbs don't necessarily try to account for all the complexity of life and all the things that could possibly happen. It's just giving you general principles to help guide you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And just because that didn't play out perfectly in your life doesn't mean that you necessarily did something wrong along the way, only that life is complicated. Human beings are volitional creatures that can sometimes go wrong even when they've had every benefit yep. to go right. So yeah, there's a there's a there's sometimes a simplicity to the proverb that um, can can be misleading if we don't read it properly. And what's so cool is is it's wisdom literature, and wisdom lasts, right? So you can still read all of the Proverbs today and, and glean, oh yeah, this is great, like, you know, and glean out of it. Yeah. Um, it's not like, oh, that that's great for those people. Enjoy. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And it, what it says is um, that practical living, practical living is a high value yes. to God. Yeah. And uh, in fact, wisdom is like personified in some of yeah. this language mm -hmm. as an actual person crying out in the street saying, who will listen? Yeah. And it's almost like when we live our lives practically wise, mm -hmm. we are actually doing an act of worship. We're pleasing God in that way. Yeah. Um, and it's not just like, did I do something right or wrong in like a moral lens? It's more like... Was that a wise thing to do? Yeah. Which is not always just a moral lens. Yeah. But it's another lens that God places on, on us. So that's mm -hmm. wisdom literature. Some of the best ways to read it is, yeah, just hold on to it like a, like a grandpa's wise saying. Let it be something <laughs> that they're short and concise often because they stick in your mind. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. that's how it's meant to be, these little sayings you They're easy to, to memorize. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's wisdom. And kind of a, a cousin of wisdom, certain people would put this all under the same, um, the same umbrella, uh, but it's one of my favorite parts of the Bible because it really expands how you think um, of what the Bible is, and that's poetry as a genre. And again, when we first step into the Bible, I think we all come with different presuppositions and expectations. And poetry, I think, is one that just blows it up the most. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me, do you read the Bible literally? And I come to poetry. <laughs> it's like, I don't like, know how you, you, you yeah. how you do that. Do you read poetry literally? Like, I believe it's true. But like, even when you think of true poetry, it's like, what does it mean that it's true? Mm -hmm. It speaks to realities about human, human life. It yeah. captures the human experience. Just like a great story, you know, that's wasn't historically true or something is true. Yeah. Right. Um, so poetry in this way is captures truth um, in a in a very different way. So we have true historical narrative. I'm just saying that in the Bible. There's true mm -hmm. historical narrative that yeah. accurately captures something that actually happened in history. But this section of the Bible speaks of a different type of truth, I think, in a mighty way. So mm. poetry conveys the depth of human experience. Uh, it's most famous in the Psalms, but there's poetry all over. In fact, um, about one out of every three chapters in the Bible is actually some sort of poetry, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, now, if you ask yourself, like, when was the last time you read a poem? It's not not often for us, right? Like in in our in our way of thinking in today's world, we're very like fact based, principle based, and poetry does something very different. It kind of pulls at our emotions and stretches us out in different ways. It challenges us. I, if you read some some poetry, it usually says something in a way that you're not used to. It's yeah. like you're on like these common worn paths, and what poetry does for us is it kind of pulls us off of that path. Yeah. It makes us think differently. So it conveys a truth in an artful way. Yeah. In a way that's evocative rather than just it's not just communicative, like it's not just saying a thing. It's saying a thing from the from the perspective of experience. Usually yeah. it's so personal too. Yeah. Very personal. And again, the goal here is not like let me get information to you. Mm -hmm. The goal here is I want I want to harp you on to this feel bit, my yeah. experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, so cool that that's in the Bible, yeah. right? that there's heart and passion and thought. So yeah. Psalms um, are a really popular one. Lamentations, 
Um, these are books where the entire book is poetry. Um, a very interesting one is Song of Songs, which is this romantic um, uh, literature between two people, and it's a little bit racy. So if you want yeah. to blush, read Song of Songs. <laughs> um, yeah. If you can interpret all the imagery, then you'll blush. <laughs> yeah. If not, you'll be like, what, what is going these? on? Yeah. Hair Neck is like, like a goats. tower? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So an interpretive note on Poetry, uh, poetic literature is concerned with evoking feelings, again, not just conveying facts. And so we should always be thoughtful about how we apply it to our lives. So Psalm 91 is a passage that uh, I grew up and I memorized word for word. My, my grandma gave me 20 bucks. One of my favorite passages. She yeah. said 20 bucks for any of the grandkids that memorize Psalm 91. Think of all the gum I can get. Yeah, it was great. Um, so you know, it starts out, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shelter of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and him will I trust. This King James Version is what mm-hmm. I memorized. But, so right now we start out with this beautiful imagery of being like in the shadow of God's protection, yeah. and he's our fortress. Um, and there are a lot of uh, statements in that that talk about God protecting us and loving us and keeping angels lifting us up so we don't dash our foot against a stone. Mm-hmm. Even goes as far as to say, no calamity will befall right. you. Don't be afraid of disease or sickness mm-hmm. and all those things. So it, it makes a lot of really exotic claims. Right. And so if you take that, again, as a documentary or instructional video, you're going to really miss that because we all know there's the passage Jesus says of in this world, you will have trouble, Yeah, yeah. but take heart, I've overcome. And so, um, uh, so it's an important thing as we read that to again, uh, step into the expression and the experience that's being stated there. Um, but again, don't hold on to it as something that's not trying to be. Yeah. Like there's, there's like with Psalm 91, I think it's easy to read that and go, like, especially if you've been through any hurt, you can look at that and go, well, this just isn't true. Mm. It just isn't true that if you trust in God, you don't have to fear disease because I had cancer or so, right. or I lost a loved one or this kind of thing, and they loved God. You know, there's a, there's a very, um, there's a nuanced way to read poetry because we have to, we have to recognize that it's conveying something that is bigger than it's just its constituent parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's something, there's an underlying truth. So, how do you look at, you know, at, at Psalm 91, for example, um, who bas- which basically says that a righteous person who trusts in God doesn't have to worry about any, doesn't have to worry about disaster. And then you've got, you know, Jesus in the garden, you know, going through intense pain and suffering, he, the ultimate righteous person, um, or, the, you know, the, the fates that many of the, the, the apostles suffered later on. We can't look at those goals, one of these has to be untrue. Mm-hmm. One of these has to be false, because they have this reality that comes on the one hand, and then you've got this as conveyed in in poetry on the other hand. That's not that's not the way it works. There is something deeper that's being conveyed when you're reading poetry. You're reading about a truth that is um, that kind of sits on a different level. It's not necessarily a like a um, sort of a simplified factual statement as much as it's a statement of a truth about the kind of person that God is and the way we're meant to relate to Him and and that sort of thing. And some of some of the some of the bigger, more transcendent truths about mm. God without mm. being so granular as like, oh, well, this is either true or false. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Forrest Gump wasn't a true historical Wait. movie. Wait, um, I saw the footage. He's in there. <laughs> but it captures truth, right? So yeah. uh, just one, one quick note on poetry and how to, how to read it. One of the things I love about uh, the Psalms in particular is that they capture all of the variety and vibrancy of human emotion, mm. which I think sometimes in religious circles, we can feel like we need to shut down, like I need to just be happy all mm. the time or something. And mm. as you read through the Psalms, you'll find there are definitely lamentation Psalms where people are just sad and expressing mm. the brokenness in life. There are really angry Psalms, which are, if you want to impress your friends at home, imprecatory Psalms mm. is what they're called. Mm. Um, one of my favorite words. Um, and these are like calling out with anger against injustice in the world. And I've heard people talk about like, man, I was so angry about some wrongdoing that was caused to me. And maybe I was just told like, just forgive it, forgive it, push it down. And it felt mm-hmm. like I, I I need words to be able to express this anger. Yeah. 
um, or this this thing that's wrong with the world. Conveyed like grief, yeah. The Psalms do that for you. You right. can actually find those emotions around God's word and now express those words back to him. And it's okay to be mm-hmm. frustrated and it's okay to be sad and it's okay to be joyful and happy. Mm-hmm. And the Psalms kind of give us uh, a framework and a place to enter into where we can express those things. And permission to let it fly. Yes, you know? exactly. I mean, uh, a lot of them were written by David and this this great character in the Bible. And if you read some of them, you go, is he allowed to ask yeah. God to hurt somebody else? Like, yeah. is he allowed <laughs> to do that? And, uh, it's one of my favorites. Psalm 311 says, Arise, O Lord, slap my enemies in the face. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. And Wind up a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but what does that allow for you? You think, now I can express emotion, and God wants me to, and now I've got words to put behind it. So Yeah, that's good. Um, that's the beauty of poetry. Yeah. All right, let's keep moving. Let's go on, Jason. Uh, we got a pistle coming up. So a pistol... Uh, it's a real pistol. Yeah, <laughs> a pistol. It's is a fun it's word. <laughs> yeah. That's what I said. A pistol. We anyway. got a pistol coming up. Anyway, sorry. Whatever. Now that we're off that, um, an, an epistle is a letter. We get hung up on the weirdest thing. An epistle <laughs> is a letter, <laughs> right? Okay, so there are twenty-one epistles in. Not the a letter New of the alphabet. A, a letter like you would write to time. your grandparents, <laughs> or that you would possibly receive in the mail if you, you know, were living 20 years ago before email. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's it's a letter that was sent to people or to specifics. So um, a good chunk of the New Testament is made up of these epistles. There's 21 in the, in, in the New Testament, and they were written by the apostles and directed to various specific individuals and churches of the day concerning specific contemporary issues. They allowed for church leaders to provide instruction and encouragement and correction to fellow believers across large distances. So it was a way that these guys, the apostles, could uh, be in communication with the churches. Possibly it was a church that they started or planted, and with um, other believers, too, and that the that they wanted to write to and encourage and say, hey, make sure to do this. And, and so we have some examples here, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Peter, First and Second and Third John, and others, right? Um, so the epistles are, are some of the most fun books to read, and it, it's probably the ones that are almost t- t- talked about the most in church mm-hmm. setting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we interpret... Um, these epistles, it's important to know that oftentimes there are many sorts of of timeless principles that can be found out of these. But it's important to know, too, the context and that they were being written to a specific church or a specific person in a certain time about specific issues. So it's important as you're going through to realize that, yes, there are these timeless principles. And we've talked about the application bridge, and this is a great place to use those. but also knowing the context that that these encouragement or these instruction pieces were being written in, yeah. Um, so that that's just kind of as you're going through and you're reading Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, knowing that there was a lot of issues going on at the church at Corinth, and Paul had to address those, and and a lot of that stuff is still is valuable to us, who is is we can glean out of it and be like, okay, yes, it's important to do this and not do this, but at the same time, uh, uh, Paul was writing about a specific issue at t- at the time as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it brings that to life a little bit more when you yeah. understand, okay, this is a conversation between these two groups of people, or, you know, Paul and then this group of people, and when you understand that group of people that he's talking to, it starts to highlight some of those those things, and maybe we'll shift a little bit of your understanding of what, about what those principles are actually chasing after. Yeah, in exactly. the next episode, we talk about authors, but at the same time, it, it, it's important to know all this context, too, especially with epistles. Is is there are ways that we can go in and learn about these churches at the time and learn mm-hmm. what was going on so that as you read these letters, you, you have some of the context and that background to know, oh, here's here's why Paul is saying this mm-hmm. at this time, because this was going on. Yeah. There's a lot of... of, of overall context that's good to have. Yeah, totally. There's a good balance there between contextual info that needs to be dug up and um, and just great, Truth. great 
great timeless principles. Because yeah. the epistles were written during the church age. They were written during yeah. the time after Pentecost had come. You you had the Holy Spirit. You had the church being built by these apostles. Totally. And so there's a they had a lot to say about how church life was meant to be conducted. Mm-hmm. So there's tons that we can gain from that. Love epistles. That's I think we go to them so frequently in in teaching uh, as part of the modern so church there, because yeah. <laughs> and because it's directed to people who are very much like us, yeah, believers in Jesus Christ who are trying to figure out life together in the family. And it fits again what what we often th- expect out of the Bible, which is instruction mm-hmm. and you know um, descriptions of how to live and encouragement. And yeah, exactly, very much so. Yeah, and, and that's what's so fu- like. It's not that we get these sorts of letters <laughs> anymore. You know, y- y- imagine getting a letter that has this whole exhortation about Christ or whatever, and you're like, "This is amazing! I love this!" And then, and then, oh, by the way, don't forget to do this. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. And you're like, oh, "Okay, you know, I, I, I got yeah. you." But it it just runs the gambit of yeah. different time, to- and, and that's what's so fun about the epistles too. Yeah, mm-hmm. It really does. All right, next up, oh, prophecy. All right, this is fun. Uh, So prophecy is a very interesting genre, right? So if epistle is like right there kind of at our fingertips and really easily applicable to our lives, prophecy is like a whole different beast. (laughs) Beasts are used in prophecy, by the way. Um, Speaking of. (laughs) And definitely in the one we'll cover next as well. Exactly. So we just got a couple more genres to cover. um, But on this one, uh, prophecy is, again, a bit of a a bit of a cousin to poetry. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of thought. But basically what prophecy is, is it's God speaking his voice uh, to people. And then those people then speak on God's behalf. So often when I think of prophecy, I think of like, what's in the future? But a lot of prophecy is not about what's in the future. Right. Uh, it's not about telling what's going to be coming. Right. It's just, here's God's voice. Here's what God mm-hmm. is saying to this particular context at this particular time. And what do you need to do now? Right, exactly. Yeah. So these prophets, um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Obadiah and Habakkuk and all these people were prophets, people that, that spoke the voice of God to their people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in both Old and New Testaments, right? So John the Baptist is known as as a prophet in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Old Testament, um, God spoke to his people through these prophets in order to guide them and calling them usually to obedience and warning them of the consequences of their evil actions. So as you're reading through, it's an interesting thing when you're reading like Isaiah or Jeremiah, some of these major prophets, Ezekiel, is there'll be like some bit of story, usually about that prophet being called, what we call the call narrative, um, and then you kind of get into these large, poetic, uh, descriptive statements. Usually, you know, the word of the Lord, and then you have all these things that are said of, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, then this will happen. Mm -hmm. And the happenings are not just like, um, you know, you're going to be sad with life. It's like very vivid imagery (laughs) of fields going dry, or then on the contrast of fields just bursting with grapes and vibrancy in life. So like, it's very um, poetic in that sense, very strong language. Mm -hmm. So as you're reading through the prophets, there may be points that you're saying, wow, God is very angry or seemingly violent or there's a lot of wrath here and then you'll turn the next page and you're like oh god is so gracious and so (laughs) wonderful and just so giving and and that contrast is kind of meant to be there in in prophecy it's meant to convey the contrast between obedience to covenant and disobedience to covenant I, i had a professor that called the old testament prophets covenant enforcers, mm-hmm. that essentially their yeah. job was to call people back <laughs> to obedience that to the covenant which God had established with Israel. And really, every prophet you read in the OT is dealing with uh, the confrontation with people who have deviated from God's yep. commands yep. and calling them back. And so you have, typically with them, uh, with these OT prophets, you have people saying, this is what will result if we do not turn back to obedience to God, this is what will result if we do. Yeah. So you have the con- like, and it's it's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful 
thing that God does through the prophet saying like, guys, this is where you're headed. I don't want you to go there. This is what you could have if you will just turn yep. back. Yep. And so they they are a, the prophets are a picture of God's faithfulness because he never stops. Exactly. As, we'll, as, as we see in some of the prophets, like Jeremiah, for example, who's speaking to the, to the nation of Judah right before, you know, the Babylonians came in and wiped it out. Yep. To the very last second, God was still saying, if you'll turn, if you'll turn, if you'll turn, if you'll there's turn. There's still time, there's still time, there's still time. And they just often wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But they're such a, the prophetic books are such a picture of God's faithfulness, where Absolutely. God saw where people were headed, but he never stopped calling him back. It's not too late. Come on back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and it speaks of um, God's faithfulness and also his desire to make things right. Mm-hmm. So if the question is like, how do we read the prophets? Um, uh, one interpretive key, first off, prophecy, as you all know, can go really funky really fast. <laughs> and there have been lots of bad interpretation <laughs> of prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, context is critical. You got to understand that most prophetic writings were intended for a specific group of ancient people saying, hey, this group right here, if you do this, this will happen. If you don't, this is what will happen. Um, we have to be very careful about um, taking those timeless principles out of that, um, but not like apply their teachings directly to our lives inappropriately. Yeah. So for example, we may have some some picture of an Old Testament covenant with the people of Israel, and we may try to like apply that to the United States or something like that. Like, which, if my people called by my name will turn yeah. to me. You know, yeah, and pray. Then, they're like, whoa, well, Yeah, I'll there's some call, truth to that. God those, is saying, yeah. hey, I want my people to be a yeah. people of prayer and to turn to me. Yes. But some of those specific promises, you know, we have to be careful about uh, taking those for sure for our people group, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I think with, uh, sorry yeah. to break, but for, with that example, I think the the example there is wrongly applied to the states all the time. And we yeah. we take the my people and we say, well, we can commandeer that and that, that can be the USA. Like, this is God's people because we're you know, Christian heritage and all that stuff. But that's not the my people that the prophet was actually speaking to. He was speaking yeah. to to the Israelites, not yeah. to not to us. At, at the very what we could pro- potentially apply that to, the my people of today would be the church, church, the believers in Jesus Christ. So if there's any application there or if there's any way to kind of take that yes. to a modern reader, that would be the direction to go totally. with it. But yes, it's very common for for people to read um uh like we said earlier with 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 poetry and wisdom promises into these Old Testament prophets that aren't actually for us. Right. They were never and now, for us. And again, yeah. beautiful truths are within it, but it's what do we mean by truth? So like Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm gonna set, I'm gonna do it, right? So mm-hmm. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is a prophet book. Mm-hmm. Um and so we say, hey, we know the plans God has for us, plans to prosper us and give us a hope and a future, right? So often we take that and apply that to me personally. And I don't think that's necessarily the worst, worst thing you can do, but you have to understand what's being said here is this is the people of uh, Judea that have been brought into exile in Babylon, and God is saying, look, I'm, I'm for you. Like, I don't just want to destroy you as a people. Yeah. I'm for you. So read what's around that and understand the story and then say, okay, that tells me something about who God is. So how to read the prophets, if I'm going to give you a few positives. First off, it tells us about God's ethical convictions. Like, if you want to know how much God cares for the poor, go read Amos, and you'll know how much God cares for the poor and the brokenhearted and how he likes to challenge often those who maybe are so materialistic that they're hoarding things for themselves and not caring for those that are in need, right? Mm -hmm. So it tells us about God's convictions. What does God really care about? What does he get fired up about? Mm -hmm. Um, And then it tells us about our natural tendencies, which is usually to not listen to God (laughs) uh, and to go our own way. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, that's when I'm I'm reading the prophets, that's kind of what I'm digging into. I'm getting closer to this God who calls us back, always calling us back to the way of life that he's asking us to live. So it's good. good. Let's talk apocalyptic writings. Ooh, Perhaps the most misunderstood parts of the Bible. I would say probably without a doubt, <laughs> the most misunderstood. The word apocalyptic means to uncover. It comes from Latin. And I think one important thing to make clear about apocalyptic writing right up front is that apocalyptic writing does not merely deal with the end of the world. We think of apocalypse as like the end of days, 
you know, the world is ending. And that can be, apocalyptic writing may include that, but that's not the only thing that apocalyptic writing seeks to convey. Apocalyptic writing is writing that deals with the ultimate things which God will bring about. I think the way we can contrast an apocalyptic writing from from a, a simpler, more straightforward prophetic writing is that prophetic writing was meant to um, deal with more immediate, with an immediate situation, like uh, and th- like a prophet is enforcing the covenant, calling people back to faithful obedience, or else this bad thing will happen. And with prophecy, there's usually an if-then proposition. There is a, mm-hmm. a decision that's placed right. on the individual or on the nation saying, if you'll do this, this will happen. If you'll do this, this will happen. With apocalyptic writing, it is God conveying to people, this is what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. There is no stopping it. This is part of my ultimate plan, and you can do nothing to thwart it. It will come to pass. So when you deal with passages of the Old Testament, for example, that deal with the coming of the Messiah, those, in a sense, are apocalyptic passages, because that is a plan which God was going to bring about and could not be stopped by anyone. So when we deal with apocalyptic writing, we're dealing with the things that will come to pass that God has ordained. These things will happen. They often include really deeply symbolic language. Um, sometimes that can be almost impenetrable to the modern <laughs> reader because it's just it's so rich in symbolism and can be sometimes so cryptic that uh, it has to be con- it has to be interpreted with extreme care. Yes. Uh, yes. You cannot just you can't jump the gun. And usually, if you read a passage of of apocalyptic literature. Um, whatever you read as a surface reading, that's probably not the correct interpretation <laughs> yeah. of it. Like, if it seemed easy to decipher, it's probably the wrong interpretation yeah, to begin with. It's such a cultural leap. So it's mm-hmm. like if, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in Western, in, in the West right now, and you, like, go to, like, a Bollywood premiere, and, like, what is happening in the story? I don't get, like, you're, <laughs> that's probably the experience that you'll have if you step into apocalyptic. Yeah. Because it is such a cultural leap. The amount of imagery that is tied to so many cultural things back then, mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's very, very different. Yeah. So you're right. A straightforward reading means we'll, you're probably doing it wrong. Will usually take you astray. <laughs> and, and, and I think one... One other thing to to understand with apocalyptic writing is um, it appears, and and I don't want to make too many like very like hard uh, statements on this, but very often apocalyptic writing in the Bible, especially when we look at the Old Testament, and that when we look at Old Testament things that were said to be coming that then were fulfilled in the New Testament, what we find is often apocalyptic writings are not understood in their own time. They're understood in retrospect when those events actually come to pass. For example, with the coming of Jesus, there were many, there were lots of expectations about the coming Messiah that people had, and Jesus came in a way that completely flabbergasted them. So, but then when Jesus came, you have a lot of this, this is what the scriptures meant when, this is what the scriptures Mm -hmm. meant with. So, with apocalyptic writing, often these are types of writing that only gain full clarity when the events come to pass, so that when those events do come to pass, you're able to go... This is God doing this. This is what God was foretelling. And I wonder when it comes to a lot of end times prophecy if, if, uh, or, or apocalyptic writing, if the, same, if the same will be true. There are some types and shadows that are so dense and so hard to understand that it may be that it's not meant to be predictive in the sense that we won't be able to say exactly what will come to pass, but meant to be kind of retrospective mm-hmm. where when those events come to pass, we'll be able to take comfort going, oh, I recognize this. This is what the Lord was conveying in this mm. this previous passage. Um, so apocalyptic writing is super, super interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm you tempted know, on a rabbit trail. But I don't know. When you think about how to read this, right? Yeah. How to read apocalyptic. So one of the challenges with apocalyptic is if if the whole point of it is just for that last generation, then we've got a bunch of books in the Bible that like have no application to us at all. So that can't be the entire way that we even think about it. So how do we then read Revelation? Well, there are a few schools of thought. One of them would say um, that apocalyptic actually can be kind of some presentation of history, but in a very, like, uh, vibrant and... um, metaphorical way. So certain people would say, hey, Revelation actually captures some of the story of the early church, but in a very poetic way. I don't think that's all of it, right? This isn't just history. Revelation is not just history. But as you understand the the original church and how they were martyred by this great and evil leader, right? So there's some ties there to Nero and kind of what happened. Mm -hmm. And then there's this like 
thematic way of reading apocalyptic that says, okay, it's capturing major themes of humanity. Um, and again, I don't think that's all that revelation is. Um, but you look at certain things like, uh, you know, the, the famous Mark of the Beast, right? This, uh, this thing that basically you have to work within this economic system in order to be a part of this community. And it's really driving towards this picture of we are very materialistic people that can get caught up in viewing other people not as God's creations, but as giving units, uh, people that help me consume, right? So that's what that can become. And so as we read Revelation, uh, I think that there's kind of this three-pronged approach we can take to it as we try to figure out how to interpret it. Uh, One is to know God's in charge and all things are going to be made right in the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other one is to say, um, wow, there is a lot of violence and evil against Christians for much of Christian history. Mm -hmm. And then a third one is, um, what themes can I pull from this? Um, the the slaughtered lamb, right? We we win by sacrifice, right? Um, we should fight against materialism. So it starts getting real deep. But again, mm-hmm. this is what happens when you get into literature, not just as instructional, mm-hmm. but as something that is um, uh, mind-bending and shapes how you think. Yeah. So I think that's what apocalyptic does. It is a mess, pretty much. It's very hard to dig into. <laughs> it is extremely hard. One thing that came to mind, one thing that I've often wondered when it comes to apocalyptic literature, because you have it in the Old Testament, you have it in the New Testament. By the way, we keep referencing Revelation. Revelation is always, you know, the typical Christian example of apocalyptic writing. But it's also in Daniel, it's in Ezekiel, it's in mm-hmm. Zechariah, and other places in the Old Testament. Um, but what's interesting is when you see the, it, there's there seems to be an, an intentional, it's sometimes seems to be intentionally cryptic, like things that could have been said in a clearer way but weren't. And I wonder, too, sometimes if, you know, we, we sometimes forget that there is a there is a big field of play and a big field of battle that actually exists, and it, and it actually goes way beyond just our human experience. There's an entire... There's an entire spiritual landscape of events that are occurring, things that are mm-hmm. happening, a plan that is unfolding, and ultimately God's plans, which are... Which are um, triumphantly moving forward, and Christ is the the ultimate fulfillment of that. And I wonder too, at times, if um, the sometimes uh, the challenging nature of apocalyptic writing um, may even have a role in God's um, in the unveiling of God's plans and His desire to God keeps certain parts of His plan a secret. God keeps some things mysterious, and I wonder if there is a if there's a strategic uh, process that that is playing out where mm-hmm. God is hiding. Like when you see with the coming of Jesus, for example, um, and some of the somewhat cryptic <laughs> passages about his coming in the Old Testament and how it struck everyone as such a surprise when certain things. And then you have Satan who played an active role in getting Jesus on the cross, you know, in 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 form of you know entering into Judas and all that stuff. And it kind of feels like. Um, some of the apocalyptic writings about what will ultimately occur are almost specifically designed to kind of throw the enemy off the trail a little bit. There's an interesting, <laughs> like, uh, I think there's something interesting to be said there. But the fact is, we have to read it carefully. We've got to handle it with a lot of care and, and, and a lot of thought. And I think w- the way I approach apocalyptic writing is I just, I trust the future to God and I try not to um, lean on my own understanding there because that will mm-hmm. almost always jack me up. Shall we end with some doables, Jason? We always do, so we might as well continue the tradition. Um, so, guys, we've talked about a ton of genres today. Your heads might be spinning. Um, so, what we're saying, let's keep the doables nice and simple. Take the book of Second Timothy, all right? It, this is a letter. It's an epistle. We talked about that from the Apostle Paul to a young man named, what are the odds? It's Timothy. And, okay, and Paul was in prison at the time. He was in Rome when he wrote this. Uh, But here's the exercise for the day. Let's not read it just as a holy document. Instead, read it as a letter from one Christian to another and try to appreciate the humanity found in Paul's words, right? A great example, you'll get a kick out of this one as you come up to chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says, come and visit me as soon as you can. And when you come... Please bring my coat with you. It's the little things, right? Um, 
Paul was cold and he wanted his was cold and he wanted his favorite coat and he asked Timothy for it. <laughs> That's a great thing to find in these letters, right? So so just we give you an example of a book. Choose a different book if you want, but do some research into the genre of it and then start to read it through that lens. I'll look back at what we talked about with that genre and then read accordingly. That's the doable for the week. That's good. Love it. Any closing thoughts, homeboy? Just to our our uh, listeners and viewers, wade into it. Wade into scripture. Let it challenge you um, and understand the Bible as this just beautiful library of literature. Um, it is so much more vibrant and challenging and multifaceted than we usually give it credit for. Uh, so wade in and have fun. This is... Uh, um, this is God's word, all of God's word to us. So, amen to that. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Everybody, we love you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If you're a podcast listener and you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. And if you're thinking, hey, listening's great, but is there a way I can watch these episodes? Yeah, there is. Subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for video versions of these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you're already watching us on YouTube, subscribe to the podcast so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question just might inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning into Doable Discipleship. I'm Doug Jones, and I hope you'll join us again next week.